a couple weeks ago, uh, Jonathan and I went on his senior trip, went out to Phoenix and so forth. It was a good good trip for the most part. There were bumps along the way, but for the most part, it was a really good time. Been in time with him and with uh, my extended family as well. And we happened to be away on a Sunday, and uh, my brother, as many of you know, is a pastor as well. Uh, pastors a church in uh, Fountain Hills, Arizona. And uh, so we attended Sunday morning services with him while we were out. And uh, as I was walking up to the auditorium, um, I saw the ushers and I saw several of the deacons. I knew them from previous interactions and so forth. And they were wearing T-shirts, shorts, sandals. And as I was walking up and I saw that, it clicked in my head just immediately. Well, that'd never go over in Texas. You know, um, and, and there are obviously exceptions to that, but there, I, I've served in churches where not deacons and ushers, but just minister, uh, just members were chastised for showing up in shorts or whatever. I've served in those churches. I've, I've been in those environments. Um, and, and as I thought about that, I thought about, okay, wh- why did that trigger in my head? Why did, why did that particular issue just, just a momentary seeing them dress that way? It's like, okay, why did why did I even think about that? Why didn't I just run in and worship and let them be who they are and so forth? And, and it, it comes back to the struggle we have as believers in terms of doing things that represent Christ. Okay. Um, I've heard people over the years say, you know, when I come to church, I want to give Christ my best. And, and, and I, I get the sentiment, I get the understanding, you know, I want to give Christ my best, I want to be dressed in my very best so that so that I am saying to him, thank you for all the ways you've blessed me, you know, and, and, and I've heard others, you know, say, you know, I, I come to church just as I am, that's how Christ accepted me, and so that's how I come to church, you know, if I, if I wear shorts and t-shirt throughout the week, I wear shorts and t-shirt at church, and, and you have that, that, that exchange that takes place, and it can sometimes get a little bit um, vocal, <laughs> I would say. Um, over the years, you know, I've been in, I've been in the ministry now, um, surrendered to the ministry in 1984, so whatever that is, I, I don't even want to do the math, that, that would just trouble me, I think, if I, I did the math, but I've, I've been, been in the ministry over those years, and, and I've seen these arguments over the years, over what's appropriate, what's not. I, sh- I shared last week about the, the, the solitaire you know, and uh, the school there and how we would today characterize that as legalism. Um, but I've seen struggles all over, over things, how we dress, hair length. How long is hair allowed to be before it becomes disrespectful on a guy? Now, see, I grew up in the 80s. That wasn't a big deal because in the 80s, everybody had short hair. That was the style that was in for guys, so it wasn't a big deal. But you know, the '70s when my brothers grew up, you know, they 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 had that. Well, you're not being a very good Christian. You got that long hair, you hippie, um, that sort of thing. And and you you have those you have that that sort that sort of discussion. I remember the churches I've served over the years, Christmas and Easter. What does a church do or not do on those holidays? Do we have a Christmas tree somewhere in the auditorium? Do we have an Easter egg hunt? Is that appropriate? Because, you know, an Easter egg hunt, that's not really a Christian practice, you know, whatever. So, 
you know, you got people in the church like, oh, if you have Easter egg hunt, you're just giving in secularism and you hate God. And you have others, let's have Easter egg hunt because it's fun. It gets kids here and, you know, it, it's, it's just a time of celebration and so forth. Um, you know, uh, the use of alcohol. How much, if any, is allowable? Tobacco. Okay, my dad was a smoker. Okay, pretty, pretty heavy smoker. Um, and uh, I remember how angry he would get whenever a pastor would say anything against smoking. Okay, that's not his place and that's not his role and those sorts of things. I mean, that was that was my dad. And um, especially if the pastor happened to be um, overweight, my dad would really go off on those. You know, how, how dare they speak, you know, about smoking when, when he looks like that, you know. Um, you know, uh, open communion. Who gets to participate in the Lord's Supper? Uh, do we regulate that or do we allow them freedom and that sort of thing? Uh, Sunday night services. Okay, you got those. Man, if you don't meet on Sunday night, you don't love Jesus. I, I remember a pastor, I was a senior in high school, uh, visiting a church. A pastor preached a sermon on why, why it's a sin to miss Sunday night. And his, his passage was um, when Jesus appeared to the 12 apostles and Thomas wasn't there. And the text says that was a Sunday night. It was the first night of the week. And so he used that. He extrapolated from that that all the things Thomas missed out on because he missed Sunday night. Okay, that was his sermon. Um, you know, you, you have those debates. Obviously, worship style. That's a debate. If you, if you put a guitar up here or... Heaven forbid, drums up here. You, you know, do are you are you questioning God's authority or sacredness of the church and that sort of thing? We have these debates. We have these these struggles, and, and, and that was just that's just a short list of of things I've encountered over the years. Um, you know, and, and each of us has our own. There, there may be things that bother you that don't bother me. There may be things that bother me that don't bother you. And I don't say that to, to ridicule anybody or to, to shame anybody. I'm, I'm simply saying that the struggles between license and legalism are difficult to, to navigate sometimes. Because let, let, let's, let's face it, it's easy or easier to live in one or the other. Okay, if you live in the realm where you're legalistic about everything, that's easy. I just don't do any of it. Okay, I have these set rules and that's what I do. If you live in the realm of license, it's easy. You know, I, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. But most of us live somewhere in between those two. Most of us live in that area of trying to navigate and make decisions that are appropriate. So over the next several messages, next four messages, in fact, uh, we're going to deal with this with this subject. And um, now, now, why several messages? Well, because number one, it's a big topic, and there's lots of implications and nuances to the discussion. Um, number two, I think it's an important topic that just can't be addressed and gone. It needs time to to soak in and and really to take hold and and really to, to, to settle in. And then number three, in our book here, Paul takes four chapters to deal with this issue. 
And if it took Paul four chapters to deal with the issue, I think I probably need at least that much. You know. And so over the next uh, several weeks, we're going to be moving through First uh, Corinthians eight through eight through eleven, and looking at this subject. Now we've already kind of gotten our feet wet with this in chapter six and seven. Chapter six, Paul dealt with the the, the people who were all about uh, uh, freedom. I can do whatever I want, even to the point of sexual immorality. In chapter six, Paul came in and said, "No, sexual immorality has no place in the Christian life because we are connected with Christ." And it's not appropriate for us to connect our bodies that are indwelled by the Holy Spirit with that which is unclean. So that should not be a part of who we are. And in chapter 7, you had what we dealt with last week. You had those people who were saying, man, we need to abstain from everything. Anything that brings you pleasure, just be done with it. Walk away from it. And Paul says, no, that, that's not biblical ideal either. And so he's kind of he kind of opened the door to this discussion, but... It's really in chapter 8 that he, that he begins to, to dig in and, and deal with it in a way that, that it's much more systematized and much more direct. And he brings in a, a variety of issues over these chapters, um, asking the question of what's appropriate and what's not, using these issues as an example. And, and so we, we're going to look at these because we want to be true to the Word of God. I think, I hope, that as a believer, one of your... Guiding principles is, if the Word of God says I, I need to listen to it, I'm going to listen to it. the Word of God says I need to do something, I'm going to do it. We also want to accurately portray Christianity. Okay. Both of these extremes, license and legalism, I think misrepresent the reality of Christianity. They, they mischaracterize grace. They mischaracterize uh, our relationship. And if our goal, our purpose as, as people is to portray Christ, to reveal him to the world, to make him known to the world, then the decisions we make can either further that purpose or deter it, limit it in some way. And we also want to learn, I think, hopefully, how to interact with each other appropriately. Now, we haven't really had this issue much in this church since I've been here at least. Um, you know, this is a very loving church, and, and I appreciate that very much. But there's always that possibility right around the corner that something's going to stir up, something's going to, to pop up that leads this. And, and Paul's primary purpose in writing here in, to the church in Corinth is, as we noted at the very beginning, it's unity. It's bringing people together giving them a, a means by which they can operate, even on things they disagree with. Um, they can function together. And so we want to accomplish that and see some ways that we might be able to do that. So let's look, 1 Corinthians 8. I'm going to go ahead and read the, the whole chapter. It's just 13 verses, so it's not a, it's not a long read. Uh, but follow along with me, if you will, in, in your own uh, Bibles. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods 
and many lords, yet for us there's only one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, and all things are through him, and we exist through him. Moreover, not everyone that has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat. We are not better off if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin, when, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you're sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. So Paul starts here with uh, probably a question, again, that was raised by the church at Corinth, a, a question of what about these, this, this food, this meat, that is provided in these other temples? Now you say that, that seems kind of like a strange situation, food provided in temples. Again, you need to understand that in their culture, in their setting, the, the temples were really the butcher shops of the ancient Near East, okay? Because people would bring their animals to the temples for sacrifice. Um, Judaism was not the only uh, religion that participated in animal sacrifice. Many religions did. And so they would bring their animals to the the, the temples to, to, to be sacrificed. And, and when you did that, only a portion of the animal typically, for most offerings, was actually put on the altar. Okay. Usually what was considered the best parts, the fatty parts is generally what, what was used. The, these parts were put on the altar. Well, that does what? That leaves a whole rest of the animal. Okay, And if you have dozens, perhaps even hundreds of people bring, bringing sacrifices to the temple, you got a lot of animal meat there. Well, what do you do with that? Well, the temples would typically sell that meat to support their ministries, would would. Sometimes they even cook it up, serve it, and so forth. But they would they would provide that meat to the public, and you would pay a price for it, and so forth, just like we would in our restaurants. And that would help support that particular temple, that particular religion. Okay, so here you have these Christians, many of whom uh, in Corinth, especially, are, are Gentiles. They grew up in this environment. They grew up going to these places to eat. They grew up going to these temples to, to eat their food or to purchase their food for consumption at home and so forth. And they're eating there, and there's some who are saying, hey, wait a minute. You're participating. By eating there, you are participating in worship of another god because that food was sacrificed to this other god. That, that food was actively sacrificed. And not only that, you're supporting that ministry by paying for that meat. And they're looking at it and they're saying, that is sinful. How can you do that? How can you carry that out? And they're saying, I'm free in Christ. This, this food, these gods aren't even real gods. I mean, the foolishness of people to follow that, you know, yeah, okay, maybe I'm supporting that somewhat with my with my funds and purchasing this meat, but 
But that's not my task. My task is to reveal Christ, and, and eating this meat doesn't change or affect me one way or another. And so this struggle was, was arising here within the church at Corinth. Some on one side saying, you better not eat that meat. And some on the other saying, eat all you want. doesn't make a bit of difference. And so they write to Paul and they ask him, what do we do? And, and Paul's response here, he, he again, he starts, just, just as we talked about last week, he starts by laying out some, some, some principles that should help people determine their course of action. What are some, some things that we should keep in mind? And so when we deal with this issue of legalism, license, and freedom, and, and where we find ourselves, The first thing we need to understand is that the whole issue should be founded in the idea of accountability. Accountability. Accountability in these passages, in Paul's instruction, happens in two ways. Number one, who we are. Accountability is, is played out in the terms of who we are as individual. People are watching us. People are watching you especially if you've made some profession of faith public. You know, you've, you've told them, I'm a believer. But we're talking about our children, our grandchildren, our coworkers, neighbors or whatever. They know you go to this church or they know you go to a church or whatever. They're watching you. They are, they're, they're probably not, for the most part, you know, scrutinizing every single decision you make. But they have a general idea of who you are and what you're doing. And that puts a weight on me. That, for many of you, puts a weight on you. Am I revealing to people who Christ really is? The decisions I make, the movies I watch, the things I purchase, the places I go. What do they say about Jesus? And again, that doesn't settle the issue because, you know, some of us may take the approach, tells them that Jesus is a God of freedom, that I'm free in Christ. And some, you know, or the other side, Jesus is the God who, who constrains my actions, who, who, who gives me discipline in my heart and in my mind and, and how I perform, those sorts of things. How you view Jesus can also feeds into this particular issue. But nonetheless, regardless of which way it is, there's accountability present. And not just in terms of non-believers, but fellow believers here in this church. One of the one of the things that um, uh, kind of intrigued me, I guess, a little bit. I started out in a, in a small small town church. I'm now once again in a small town church. In between, I served churches in in big metroplexes. And the difference is, I run into y'all a lot more than I did people in my my big church, big town. Okay, out in the public, you know, I'm at Sam's or Walmart or grocery store or whatever, I, I ran into y'all, okay? So here in the small town, it, this hits me just a little bit more. Okay, what am I doing? Because they're everywhere, okay? What am I doing that they might see me doing? And, and, and am I doing something that misrepresents my role as pastor or even more importantly, my role as Christian, okay? People are watching us. People, people know each other in, in this environment, in this situation. And so that's significant. Paul's main concern is what? How we affect fellow Christians more than how we affect the non-believer. 
purpose of this chapter. But the second part of accountability is, is who they are. Who the people are that are watching us. We are taking responsibilities for others in Christ. And that's an important feature. Too often, I think Christians are like Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? They ask those questions trying to excuse themselves. I remember uh, in seminary when I was teaching the subject, you know, dealing with Corinthians and so forth and, and limiting our behavior and so forth. And I remember a guy saying, well, what about, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little overweight. What if, what if you eat a taco in front of me? Okay, you're, you're causing me to sin and, and, and doing that, eating that taco in front of me. You're saying I shouldn't do this or whatever. Where, where do we draw that line? About being concerned about others, stumbling. How much burdens do we take on ourselves because of other people's weaknesses. And I think if we're asking that question, we've already lost the thing. Because Paul's position here, Paul's approach here, is you are responsible for your brothers, for your sisters. And just live with that knowledge instead of trying to excuse behavior and limit behavior or remove the behavior from the issue. Keep that in mind. And so this whole issue of accountability, who we are, who they are, it, 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 it drives the discussion. Second matter is, is that Paul, again, as we've already noted, he, he's trying to work toward unity. Notice how many times in this particular chapter, Paul throws in the word brother or brother and sister in some translations. He really hasn't done that much in Corinthians up to this point. He's, he's used it occasionally, but here in chapter 8, it seems like every other word is brother. Why? Because as he's talking about this issue, he wants to, to hammer home this, this familial idea, this connectedness that we have. And just like so many other places and arguments in, in the text, Paul is driven by unity. Notice what he says there in verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him. We exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. What's he saying there? He's saying we all have one God. We have the Father. We have the Son. We have the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mention the Spirit in this particular context, but he's there too, obviously. And he's saying if we're all under that banner, if we're all family, if we're all connected, then that means we have that responsibility for them. We, we bear that weight. And so we're, it's founded in accountability. It's working toward unity. It's defined by love. It's mitigated by love. Paul wants us to understand that love not law or freedom drives us. And he, he says that you know, right, right there at, at the beginning. But love builds up. Love is what drives us. You see, being a legalist is selfish. You want things your way, and you want to define what's right and what's wrong for yourself and for everybody else. That's selfish. Being 
A person of, of license is selfish. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Both sides are selfish. Love, on the other hand, is what? It's other-centered. It builds up. If that's what's motivating us, if we're looking at others, if we're connected with others, if we're seeking to see them built up in Christ, grow in Christ, understand Christ, that changes our motivation and, and our rationale for everything we do. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, I'm doing it because that's what I want to do. That doesn't help anybody else. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm doing what I'm doing because I love my brothers and sisters. I want to see them grow as I grow. And if we would just keep that in mind, all of us, what a difference that would make in who we are and the testimony we have as a church. I, I do a lot of, of premarital counseling, and, and in the past I've done a lot of marital counseling, not so much now that I'm working primarily with college students. But one of the things that, that is always my goal in premarital counseling or marital counseling and so forth is, is to get those people in their own way, in their own journey, to a place to where they want what the other person wants more than what they want, both of them. Because there's a lot of marriages out there where one person wants what the other person wants more than they want, but the other person doesn't care. They're selfish. Those marriages don't work. And the marriages where they both just want what they want, those marriages don't work. It only works when both parties are doing what? The best they can for the other person. That's successful. That's a powerful marriage. Okay. And I would extend that to our relationships here in the church, that we need to want what the other person wants more than what we want. That, that that needs to be what's driving us. That needs to be what's pushing us. That needs to be what's motivating us. If we get to that mind that what? Where I'm loving them, helping them, and everybody's doing that, how radically different would we be as an institution as a whole? So love drives us. Love motivates our response. Notice as, as Paul talks here, and the observations he makes, he, he, he hints at, he, he clearly says that this fear of eating this meat is somewhat illogical, irrational. He hints at that. He, he says what? We know there's only one God. We know that these aren't anything but statues. We, we know that. He, he, he says that. But he doesn't push that. He's doing what? He's motivated by love, and so he's what? I'm not going to ridicule these people for this position. I'm not going to shame them for this position. I'm not going to, to spend a lot of time saying, y'all are idiotic thinking that. It's just a piece of wood. It's just a piece of stone. It's just a, a, a precious metal. It's not a god. Why would you even think that? Y'all are idiots. He doesn't do that. He says what? If someone has that conscience that's, that's tinged by this, calls him a weaker brother. But again, that's not pejorative. That's, that's, that's an expression of, of, of their connection, their growth, their maturity. Okay. He says, somebody has that, that, that problem, do what you can to help them. 
Say, I don't, I don't need to eat that meat. If, if it's going to hurt you, I don't need to eat it. I don't, I don't need it. Love is motivating Paul's whole form of speech here. And so then, then, that, then what? Love drives or directs our actions. Love for Christ. Sometimes it's, it's hard to love each other. Let's be honest. There are times when people do things that are just downright annoying. When, when we do things, when we say things that are not very bright or not very kind or selfish, it's, it's hard sometimes with each other to, to appreciate who we are, to love each other. I get it. So what does Paul say here? If you can't love your brother or your sister, love Christ. And in loving Christ, show your love to them. If you can't love them and who they are and how they're acting and what they're doing, just love Jesus. And that love of Jesus will drive you to show these people love, sympathy, and care concern, and well-being. Do things from this perspective. And, 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 and we can do that. Why? Because of the love that Christ has shown us. You know, we talked about, oh, how I love Jesus. We sing that song. Uh, the simplest songs can sometimes carry the most powerful messages. Why do we love Jesus? Because he first loved us. He made it possible for us to love him. He made it possible for us to love others. And so notice what he says there in verse 11. So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died is ruined. That's a person Jesus died for. That's a person Jesus loves. And if I'm going to reveal Christ and I'm going to to communicate all those things, all the, going back to, to what we said there at the beginning, be true to the word of God, portray the reality of Christ, portray who Jesus is, interact with each other appropriately. If I'm going to do that, then what? I need to do it the way Jesus did it. And I can do it because Jesus did it. And so as we as we start this, this journey through this issue of legalism, license, and freedom, it, it's really just... Just two realizations we need to come to. We need to realize our responsibility to others. As a Christian, we are not an island. We are not here by ourselves. We're not standing by ourselves in the realm of who Christ has made us. We are what? We're part of a body. We're connected. We're intertwined. What you do affects me. What I do affects you. What we do affects each other. We have a responsibility to each other. You are your brother's, your sister's keeper. When Cain asked that question of God, I have to imagine that in God's mind, in God's response, his answer was, yes, absolutely you are your brother's keeper. That's how I made you. I made you for community. Remember, the first not good is it's not good that man should be alone. 
He built us for community. So we have responsibility to others. But we also need to realize and, and live in the realization that we're somebody Jesus died for. And that reality that Jesus died for us does what? It empowers us. It defines us. It frees us. It, it helps us to see our value and our worth. A lot of times I've found that the people who are, who are most stingy with the rules are people who are just simply trying to find some sense of worth or identity in this world. And so they think, if I can control others, that gives me worth. Let me just tell you, in Christ, you have worth. Christ died for you. And in that action, he has given you power, he's given you authority, he's given you position. With all that in mind, my authority, my freedom, my power, my position, and my realization that I am my brother's and sister's keeper. Keep those two things in check. We'll start to make better decisions. We'll start to act in ways that are more appropriate, that truly do reflect the love of Christ, the freedom of Christ, and the holiness of God that we're all seeking to find balance in portraying lives we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. I thank you for your love, compassion. God, I pray right now for each person here. Lord, that if there's, firstly, if there's anyone here who does not know of their worth because they've never entered into a relationship, never discovered what you've done on their behalf, never discovered the, the difference you can make in their life. God, I pray that you would draw them right now. Reveal them. Reveal to them your, your grace, your goodness, your love. Call them, Lord, to submission. Help them to realize that the desperate need they have for that. And so doing, discover the life, the eternal life, the abundant life that you have to give. God, I also pray for myself and my fellow believers here this morning. You would help us to, to see who you've made us, to live in that power and that, that freedom and that compassion, but also to see that we are part of something bigger here. We're connected, we're intertwined, and we owe each other. Our very selves, our very actions, decisions, and attitudes. God, help us to be responsive to, to those things that are in our life, those attitudes, those decisions we made that are, are not in keeping in line with your desires for who you have us. And help us this morning to repent of those things, to turn away from those things, to put aside those things and begin to live as you would have us. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for all you've done and who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.